You are experiencing the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. It is May 29th, 2023, and welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty, where we are bringing you the people and the organizations fighting for liberty around the country and in your neighborhood. And today we have a special guest with us. We have Jacob Hornberger. He is the uh, a, a 2024 Libertarian Party uh, candidate for the nomination for uh, president. And he is also the president and founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation as well. And James, maybe we could pull those up real quick so that everybody can see those. Um, and let me introduce you to the rest of our panel while we're at it. Uh, on our uh, well, he was in our lower left-hand corner, but <laughs> everything shifted now. Uh, that's Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in Liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. My name's Jason McPhee, and I'll be your host today. Um, so. We recently just interviewed Jacob on another show where we talked about his campaign uh, of running for this uh, nomination for presidency in the Libertarian uh, Party. But uh, now we're going to try and dive into some of those topics a little uh, more closely. And here's also a, uh, the, the uh, web link as well uh, to his Future of Freedom Foundation as well, where you can go find out more about Jacob there as well and some of his ideas on liberty. Uh, but specifically, what we want to do now is jump into some of these uh, burning issues uh, that certainly lots of problems in the country with. And one of the most important on this show that we love to talk about is education. And what we see in, uh, <clears throat> is that we just see this continuous disaster in education that <laughs> just seems to be, uh, it seems to be highlighted by the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> certainly we saw that, <laughs> you know, as much lip service is given to education, uh, that was just absolutely uh, crushed by the state during the pandemic where they just shut down the schools and kowtowed to whatever the teachers unions were asking for. And now we're seeing that, you know, on the metrics, uh, a lot of kids have, have essentially lost uh, some of that educational development that they were uh, expected to have. Um, and uh, certainly there's been some articles as well that have talked about this has led to a recent surge in school choice. Um, you know, we've seen uh, Arizona voters pushed a school choice uh, initiative there that's uh, one of the most expansive in the country. Um, and uh, Hoover here has also a map of school choice. But this brings us, though, to the question, if, if Jacob, if you were elected president, where would you go on education? Because clearly this this current government monopoly on education doesn't seem to be doing so well. No, it really doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic. As you say, the pandemic highlighted the problems, but there's been a crisis in public schooling, government schooling, well, since the start. You've got compulsory mandatory attendance laws. You've got school taxes funding the system, which means people are being forced to fund this system. Uh, it's a socialist system. I mean, it would be difficult to find a better example of, of socialism than public government schooling. The, the state uh, decides the textbooks, the curriculum, all the school teachers are government employees. The school board is elected through a political process. It's no wonder that this thing is an absolute mess and it will always be a mess. It, it, it's not broken, as people often say. It's inherently defective. And so there's two ways you can go is you can try to reform the system and try to make it better. And I think that's a fool's errand because when you've got an inherently defective system, you cannot make it work no matter what you do. Now, you may incrementally improve it, but I've been an opponent of vouchers from the very beginning, which, of course, is a popular thing among the Republican Party. And unfortunately, many libertarians have adopted this Republican measure. 
it's, it's important that we keep in mind that school vouchers are a socialist program too. They, they're based on using the tax uh, powers of the state to take money from one group of people and give it to another group of people. So you've got the initiation of force in vouchers that, that violate the libertarian non-aggression principle, the core principle of our philosophy. And they, um, they, they, they oftentimes just make the situation worse because they put private schools under the control of the government. Because once you go on the voucher dole, you're going to be subject to government control and regulation. I say get the state entirely out of, out of education. Separate school and state the way our ancestors separated church and state. Repeal compulsory attendance laws, repeal school taxes, sell off the school buildings, a total free market in education. The free market produces the best of everything. We know that. This is our heritage as a country, the free market, and it would do that in education. Uh, entrepreneurs would be flooding the market with educational devices that parents could use. Parents would be in control of the education of their children. Consumers would decide which entrepreneurs stay in business and which ones don't. And then you treat each child as a unique, as one of a kind. And you, you fashion the, the educational vehicle best suited for your own child as compared to the cookie cutter mold, mold and the indoctrination mode over here in public schooling. I mean, it, we know it's a disaster, but the real disaster of public government schooling is it was it does to children's mind. Very rarely do you see a high school graduate expressing the same thirst for learning that a six-year-old kid does, you know, where he just loves education and loves reading and loves to learn. By the time you reach 18 in this system, they've drilled that out of you. And all you're ready to do is just get out of school. Well, that's a disaster because that's not what education is all about. So I say separate school and state, get the, get the government out of education entirely. Well, Jacob, we, so we have, um, we, in Arizona, we have the, the closest thing to what, the, what we could call universal parent choice, universal school choice. So there is, there is a distinction between the perfect and the good. Okay, so what you are describing here is probably in the libertarian world, in the libertarian world, probably what we would probably call the perfect if we could have such a thing uh, in any of our human endeavors. But you don't, you don't believe that even cases where the government funds the education, I mean, not taxpayers, I should say, fund the education, but parents make the choices of where their kids are educated or with schools should educate their children. You do not think that is even that is good enough for us to, shall we say, survive as a nation? I don't think it's good at all. I mean, you're using, these parents are using money that is extracted by force from a group of people in society, many of whom might not even have children. What, what they're saying is, I want to send my kids to a private school, so I want the state to take your money from you so that I can do this. I mean, that's the height of immorality. I mean, this is what we oppose as libertarians, this kind of initiation of force. And what it in, ends up doing, like I said earlier, it puts the private school, let's say you have a totally independent private school, except for licensure laws, which I oppose as well. But let's say you've got a totally independent private school, sort of like Hillsdale College in Michigan. Hillsdale College takes no government funds at all. They won't let their students take government grants. They are totally independent of any government control whatsoever. Let's assume you have a private school like that. As soon as that school goes on this vouchers, it's 
everything changes. They become dependent on this system. They're never going to call for the repeal of it. They have to expand their school buildings. They have to hire new teachers to meet this increased demand from these vouchers. Now you've got this private school under government control. I don't see how that can be considered a good thing. Well, it, it sounds like then you would imagine that if, if there are the, these cases where maybe poor children and, you know, they don't have educational opportunities out there because of maybe they're born and there's no parent in the picture or anything like that. Um, it sounds like then you're thinking it would be a private charity solution to, to that people would come together to, uh, you know, just donate money to help out people if they want to help kids get an education who are in these tough situations. Absolutely. I mean, look, we see that all the time where rotary groups or some service group does a fundraising drive to provide scholarships, college scholarships and so forth. Uh, If people are no longer having all this money taken from them from taxes, that that means a a big raise in the amount of money they have. Uh, We rely on them to fund the people at the bottom of the economic ladder with scholarships or building schools. This is the way America was built. Remember, we didn't have public schooling for the whole first hundred years of our country. And you had the wealthier people because there was no income tax. So you had tremendously wealthy people that were building the universities, the hospitals, the museums, the schools. Uh, that's the kind of system that really does work. Uh, and, and it's a system that relies on volunteerism rather than through force. Uh, you know, there, there's just something fundamentally wrong with a system where People say, well, I mean, let's, let's assume that my kid needs an education and I come and cost you in a dark alley and I, and I take all, no, I force you to your ATM and I tell you, take out all your, your money here and give it to me. And I, and I use it to fund my kid's education. I think he would say, Jacob, you're a thief. And I, and I would say, well, but look, my kid's getting a good education. It, this justifies what I did to you. I think you disagree with me. I think you'd say you're a thief, Jacob. Well, why do we look at it differently when we have the state doing the exact same thing? You know, one thing I wanted to mention, too, on the whole uh, voucher thing, because certainly it, it seems like it's, it's a much better system than what we currently have, although it certainly doesn't meet the ideals of, of liberty, as you're talking about, Jacob. But uh, the, the other poison pill that's sort of buried in there is that, uh, you know, some of these states that have these school choice systems, they, those, those schools that can allow you uh, to can get that public funding have to actually meet state standards. So they're still sort of hooked into the same system. If you wind up having to, to say, oh yeah, we, we meet all these X, Y, and Z standards in order to get that state money. So it's not even like, it, it's almost like a shadow way of thinking that you're, you're disconnecting from the state in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Like. It's the exact opposite. You're connecting to the state and you're connecting all these private schools to the state. And here's the other tragedy of this. I mean, you know, I mentioned in the other show about the libertarian non-aggression principle, where we all sign a pledge in the libertarian party not to advocate the initiation of force. And yet there's a lot of libertarians that do exactly that. And so what's the point of having a pledge if you're going to have a party that's saying that is an official or unofficial policy, we're going to advocate the initiation of force with school vouchers. But, but here's the tragedy. Many years ago, when I first started the Future of Freedom Foundation, I wrote an article about this. And I said, you know, school vouchers are just another socialist device to make public schooling work. And Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning libertarian economist, uh, criticized me for this because he's the mm-hmm. big promoter of vouchers. And he said, no, I, 
This is a way to get to the separation of school and state. Well, of course, I question that. To me, it more deeply embeds the state. And we, we have proof of that with Milwaukee. They've had vouchers for 30 years and you still have the deeply embedded state system. But at least Friedman gave the ideal. Uh, he was wrong, but he gave the ideal. Today's people, proponents of vouchers, they say, they tell people, we want vouchers so it will improve the public school system. Well, that's not what we libertarians are about. We're about freedom. I say, leave it to the Republicans. Let them call for the reforms. Let us raise people's vision to the higher level of what freedom is. And freedom is separating school and state entirely and relying on the free market. You mentioned these poor kids in these inner cities. They get the worst deal of this. They're in drug-infested centers of violence in these inner cities. In, in a free market, you'd had entrepreneurs providing educational vehicles, even for the poor. Uh, I mean, look at churches, okay? We don't have a state churching system. Um, and if we did have a state churching system, there undoubtedly would be people saying, oh, well, we need you know, church vouchers. But do the, do, the poor have, do the poor have any problem finding churches to go to? No, the, the poor can walk into any church and not make one donation. And that's because wealthier people say, you know what? This is important enough that we're not going to worry about people not donating to support it. That's exactly what would happen with education. Well, you know, this uh, does bring up another topic where, uh, you know, you can see how education has been polluted by this uh, as well, but it, it's going through all kinds of other areas as well. But that's identity politics. It is just creeping its way through our government. And, and essentially, it's it, it seems like we're almost in the Jim Crow 2.0 is where we seem to be headed with some of this stuff, right? I mean, uh, it, James, maybe we could get the visual up on this, but our, our, our university system now is going away from supposedly objective metrics so that they can start having much more race-based metrics or other identity metrics. And, uh, you know, I, I, it just kind of boggles the mind that we have these systems like, you know, California uh, University system sort of leading the charge on this. But um, we had these uh, uh, essentially what were supposed to be objective standards for them to try and filter which students, uh, you know, have met the standards to go to these schools. And they're saying, well, we're not getting the race mix that we want in these schools. Therefore, we're just going to throw out the whole metric. And they claim that those metrics are biased, but it's funny because uh, foreign students seem to do quite well on these tests, <laughs> which kind of, you know, challenges that. But it's beyond just they use this to segue into this topic. But uh, we see this at the in policy all over the place, too, where, you know, like the government will literally shut down your business because of COVID. And then you they come back and they say, OK, well, now we're going to help you get back on your feet. Uh, but then they want to check your your melanin level or your sexual preferences before they decide if they're going to give you money. <laughs> what what does President Hornberger do about something like this? I, I assume it's uh, just wipe it off the map. I don't know. <laughs> well, not exactly. Um, you know, as libertarians, we can get embroiled in these debates uh, as to how the universities should do things or not do things and so forth. But I say that's a boring thing to get involved in. And, and it's tedious. It, it, it really accomplishes nothing. For me, 
I just want to get the government out of education entirely at the, at the university level also. You know, we've become so accustomed to state-supported colleges and universities that nobody questions it, but I question it. Why should the state be supporting colleges and universities? Why not totally voluntary support uh, and, and let people decide whether they want to donate to a particular university, to their alma mater, what the tuition level should be? So once you have that kind of free market system, then each university and college can run its affairs the way it wants. I don't need to engage in the debate. If they say, well, we're going to have 60% whites and 40% uh, black people or 10% Asians, I don't care. I'm not going to get involved in all that. They're running the show the way they want. The consumers will decide whether they want to go to that university. And, and usually, but this is the way things are worked out in a free market that they start losing uh, college uh, uh, attendees, people going elsewhere. They start changing their policy. They're nudged in a different direction. The, the core of the problem here is the government. The government's the one that starts mandating things like affirmative action and quotas and so forth. And the reason the government's got that authority is because they're on this government dole here at these colleges and universities. I mentioned Hillsdale College. You know, the federal government tried to control Hillsdale College's admissions department on the grounds that the students were taking government grants. The school didn't take any government funny, funds, and the Supreme Court upheld that. And so Hillsdale's solution was, okay, no student will take any government grants at all. And they, they raise the money entirely voluntary and replace those government grants. So the government has no control over Hillsdale. Now, how does Hillsdale run its, its affairs? Do they have quotas and percentages and all this? I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I say, I want a free society and people can work out what they want in that free society and consumers can decide where they want to go. And so I think Jacob, that's our job as libertarians to raise people's vision to what a genuinely free society is. So, Jacob, in, 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 the, in, the, in the libertarian world that you wish to create, there'll be no publicly funded universities. Exactly. Everything private. And think of the logic of it. You know, a college comes to me and says, I want, would you please donate to me? And I say, no, I don't want to. And, and so they say, oh, well, we don't have enough money. So we'll get the legislature to go tax Jacob and take his money against him, against his will. Where's the morality in that? I just said, no, I'm not donating to you. Now you go use the state to take my money from me. Everything should be voluntary. I don't see what, what objection there is to that. But this, this, raises, this raises an interesting question. I mean, in, 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 the, in the libertarian world that you wish to create, what, what, what are the limits of government? What, what, what is the scope and the role of government? Three roles. One is to provide a judiciary, judiciary branch for people to resolve their disputes. Okay. okay you, you get in a fight with somebody over an automobile accident or whatever, you file suit. Government needs to provide a court system so you can resolve that dispute peacefully without shooting it out in the street. Second, to punish people who initiate force against others, the murderers, the rapists, the thieves, the defrauders, the, the, the people that violate the rights of other people. That's number two. Number three, to defend the country in case there was ever an invasion of the country by some foreign power, which is a virtually non-existent possibility today. Uh, but those are the three functions of government. So it's, it's completely, 
property rights uh, centered uh, uh, roles. So establishing and defending private property rights is pretty much what it sounds like then. Exactly. I mean, and, and it's very well put because a free society is grounded in private property rights. I mean, that's really the key to the free society. That's what our society was founded on, like, with the tragic exception of slavery, of course. But it, it, private property rights are the key to a free society. And so the government is charged with protecting those private property rights. And that's what brings you the free society. And as far as tying this into identity politics, then, uh, so at that basic function of government, you would want to see no, uh, you know, putting the thumb on the scale of, of, well, let's, let's check your melanin level or sexual preferences or anything like that. Government wouldn't have any power to do this. I mean, there may be a a school that says, okay, we're going to discriminate against gays. We don't want gays. Okay. That's their right. It's their private property. It's their school and government can't do anything about it. The only reason, just like it can't do anything about Hillsdale, if Hillsdale said we're going to discriminate against gays, there's nothing the government could do to stop that. And uh, but the market ferrets us out. All of a sudden people say, oh, that's a that kind of school I don't want to send my kids to. Hey, let's organize a boycott. And then that nudges that school in a different direction. But totally leave government out of the equation where the government's not imposing any rules or regulations on anybody. Let each school operate the way it wants and let consumers decide. Yeah. And we often bring up on the show too the Jackie Robinson example as the market can lead everybody to understanding that, uh, you know, that irrational bias is a terrible thing <laughs> in the market, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's costly. And that's what we saw with the Jackie Robinson story, the, the baseball player who broke the color barrier in baseball because teams simply wanted to compete and be more competitive. And so they completely integrated baseball on their own without the government having to step in and say, hey, integrate baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's absolutely, it's a great example. You know, another example was uh, rock and roll. I mean, you had tremendous integration, natural integration in rock and roll where, you know, um, blacks were going on tour with whites and you had, uh, there's a great scene in the Buddy Holly story where Buddy Holly goes into the Apollo theater in Harlem and there's just this shock that this white guy is playing the Apollo theater. Well, the, the guy that hired him thought he was black because he sounded black like Elvis did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and Buddy Holly says, well, we're shocked to see you all. <laughs> the whole audience was black. You know? But that, they were, the, the rock and roll group was breaking down racial barriers. You didn't need the state to do this. With, with in- mandatory integration laws. The market does a very good job at breaking down racial barriers. Uh, what they really should have done is just done is get rid of segregation. But if a bigot wants to discriminate, I say he's got a right to discriminate. And it wouldn't have been this big catastrophe. I mean, look, country clubs are f- still free to discriminate on the basis of race and society doesn't collapse over this. Um, so I, I think, again, I rely on the free market to make these adjustments and nudge society in a more tolerant direction rather than use the force of the state to do so. Yeah. Well, it's the, market, the, the free market, I have to admit, the free market is really the, the great equalizer if you really want the truth. You know, the government can never do that. So, um, so I, I, I totally agree. Well, making people pay the cost of their rational biases tends to it's get right. rid of a it's lot of them. It's a great equalizer. Yeah, they pay if they want to do if they want to be bigots and they want to do whatever stuff. They pay the price in the marketplace. 
That's fine. Yeah. yeah. And if so, so some guy owns a store and he says, I'm going to discriminate against blacks and his market share starts going down. And his wife says, uh, how come we can't afford a new car that people down the, down the road can? Maybe you ought to change your policy there in your store. <laughs> so yeah. That's how things change in a constructive direction. We know things can change as long as we have freedom of speech and information. And one of the things we're seeing nowadays, and James, maybe we could bring this up, but um, is uh, we see government is literally trying to manipulate our speech and and what we share. Uh, It's spying on us, as we saw with Snowden. But uh, this is an article from Reason that uh, shows journalists uh, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger testifying in front of Congress about the fact that that our, our government was literally trying to get social media companies to censor some speech without telling the public that it was doing so. And uh, not just covertly, too. We saw overtly they tried through the Department of Homeland Security to establish this, what amounts to an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. Uh, they called it the Disinformation Board. Um, and the, dis- uh, they, the they Disinformation Governance Board. Disinformation Governance Board. Yes, and they yeah. they they hired a a woman who could put song and dance to how much she wanted to, <laughs> to discriminate against our our speech as well. Well, maybe not dance, but I'm sure she had something in the works. What do you think about this, Jacob? This is just absolutely beyond the pale. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all. To me, it's par for the course because look, there's a reason why the framers had the Constitution be a government of limited powers. They, they understood that, that government attracts power lusters. And so they said, well, we want to make it clear this is a government of limited powers. And our ancestor says, no, 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 that's not good enough for us. We want amendments to the Constitution as soon as we approve it that expressly tell the little power mongers that you don't have these powers. And so the First Amendment says Congress shall pass no law infringing freedom of speech. Well, why they need that? Well, because they knew that Congress would attract the little power mongers and they wanted to send a message saying you don't have the power to do this little power mongers. And of course, it implies the whole government, not just Congress. So it doesn't surprise me that that government's doing these things. What you need is a vigilant public that is willing to stand up. Uh, I think that the one of the, the most ominous things about the uh, the Taibi thing is, is not the fact that they were pressuring Twitter. I mean, to me, that's what they do. Uh, the, the question is, does Twitter have to succumb to that pressure? And, and that, that raises a whole different issue. But what, what I think is ominous is the fact that the IRS went in there and visited Taibi the day yes. that he was given his testimony. That's right. Now, yes. You're, you're talking about some scary stuff here because now that's true censorship. It's saying, you keep your mouth shut or we're going to come after you with an income tax audit or incarceration or fine or whatever, because you all know that the IRS code is so complex. They can find anybody guilty of anything on your income tax returns if they want to. That to me is the most ominous aspect of what happened there. So, so Jacob, would would you essentially be pulling back or reducing all of these, uh, government spy agencies and such. I know you talked about it on another show that you would definitely pardon Snowden and uh, Assange, but, you know, just in general, uh, do we even need these entities that seem to be more geared toward controlling us than protecting us? Yeah. To answer your question, I would not pull them back or roll them back. I would abolish them. They need to be abolished. 
you know, our, our nation started out as a limited government republic. That means just a small basic military force. And it got converted after World War II to what is called a national security state. And the, the two most important words in our political lexicon are national security. Everything revolves around those two words. Well, to put things into context, North Korea is a national security state, Russia, China, Cuba, uh, Pakistan, Egypt, and the United States. You've got a massive military establishment, permanent. You've got a CIA with the power of assassination, indefinite attention, torture. You've got the NSA, the power of of massive secret surveillance. And it's all really one apparatus. It's divided into three parts, but it's one giant military intelligence establishment. You cannot have a free society in this. And this is one of the things that distinguishes my campaign from the other presidential candidates in this party. They all want to reform this thing. I want to dismantle it because it's the only way you can achieve a free society. And I mentioned you know, how in the previous show, how the federal government has become this killing machine, this death machine. This is the core of the death machine right here. This is what Martin Luther King called the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And that's the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA all put together. I say, get rid of them entirely. You don't need them. They're destructive and, and, and they, they destroy our liberty. You can't have a free society in this kind of system. Well, it is true. I mean, it is true that, I mean, based upon what what we have been hearing, especially in the last uh, five years or so uh, about the CIA or the FBI in particular to me is, is, is a big one, is a big threat these days as far as I can tell. I mean, the CIA is right behind it, but the FBI has really been doing some dirty things here recently. But the, but the thing is, though, where do you draw this line between national security and and on our on our and the, the functioning of our liberties here in what is supposed to be a free society because some of these things I would think are still necessary because let's face it there's evil in the world and that evil sometimes wants wants to harm us so some we need some level of protection I would imagine but we don't need the expansion that we are seeing right now in this military intelligence complex that you just spoke about. So where do you draw these lines is what, is what I'm trying to get at. You, you draw them by defining what a free society is. And you talked about evil. This is evil. The national security state is an evil form of governmental structure. A limited government republic is a good form of governmental structure. To get rid of the evil, you have to get rid of this. And, and what you're really raising is that age-old question of trading liberty for security. That that's, yes. that's what this, this national security state does, what the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA, which really are in charge of the government. Well, that, a lot of people don't realize that. That's where the real force of the government is. And they make us afraid that by saying, look at all these dangers in the world. But it's really they who are the biggest danger to us. They're the biggest danger to our freedom. They're, it's not Russia that's, 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 has the power to torture me or to indefinitely detain me or to assassinate me. It's my own government that has these powers. That, that's where the evil is. And there is absolutely no danger at all of America being invaded by any foreign power. They were trying to make Russia this new Hitler type thing, and it, their plan totally went to disaster because the Ukraine war showed that 
Russia can't even conquer Ukraine, you know, much less Western Europe or the United States cross the Atlantic and conquer the United States. So that 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 little plan they had failed and they want to make China into this giant threat. China has no military capability of invading the United States. They'd have trouble even invading Taiwan. But they gin up these crises and these threats and these dangers and these boogeymen to scare the American people. It's standard conduct in a national security state. I say discard the entire concept of national security. Okay, Just get rid of it and, and dismantle the, the Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, restore just a basic military force. Now you're talking about a free society. If, well, and- yeah, Sorry. go ahead. No, no, that's it. Well, I was just going to say, this is a perfect transition. I wasn't going to do it in this order, but since we're talking about the military state as well, uh, let's jump into that as well right now. And James, maybe you could bring up the visual on this. Um, this is a an article from Al Jazeera, and it says we have 750 bases in at least 80 countries, is what they talk about, yeah. and uh, 173,000 troops deployed in 159 countries. Uh, and, and so essentially, it's just giving you a map to show you the scope of all these different places that we have military activity going on in the world. And it, it's sort of like, is, is this really defense at this point? <laughs> that's, that's certainly one question. But then to top it off, you know, what, what are we doing? We're so tied up in all of these conflicts. Uh, you just mentioned Ukraine. Uh, and Oh my gosh! I mean, we are running out of ammunition. We're involving ourselves in so many of these conflicts. And what does that do to our defense if we're literally handing out so many of our goodies to people to go kill themselves with in other places? Um, and then to top it off, in, are we even if if you even believe that we should be in these places? Look at the way we're managing this. I mean, Joe Biden, after twenty years of of being in Afghanistan, certainly most libertarians would be for us getting out of Afghanistan. But the way we got out, where people are literally falling to their deaths from airplanes, <laughs> the visuals of that is just absolutely stunning. So, Jacob, you know, just on the on the military side of this whole state security apparatus. Would you, you know, how would you approach this uh, uh, this behemoth that we've created? Well, on your map of the of the bases, one of the funniest things I've seen is where somebody had a map and like that, and then they said that that China and Russia have the misfortune of having been geographically situated in such a way that they got they were surrounded by U.S. bases. <laughs> so it's their fault <laughs> by, by being on planet earth <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah this has been a disaster because you've got two concepts here you've got the national security state this massive permanent military establishment which our ancestors expressly rejected if you had had a national security state proposed in the constitution i will guarantee you it would not have been accepted. We'd still be operating under the Articles of Confederation, where the federal government's powers were so weak, they didn't have, even have the power to tax. Um, and so they wouldn't, they, and they, you can see the quotes from the founding fathers about standing armies. Just Google founding fathers, standing armies. You can see how they felt about it. And the big thing, as I said, a standing army is your greatest threat to your own freedom, not some foreign power. So that's what we need to do. The other half of this is the policy of non-interventionism. That was our founding foreign policy. John Quincy Adams said that in his great Fourth of July speech to Congress called In Search of Monsters to Destroy. He said, look, 
there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world, tyranny, tyrants, oppression, famines, but we are not going to send our military to save you. But we're going to have open borders. We had open immigration throughout the 19th century uh, that where people were free to escape from those things and come to the United States and they didn't have to worry about being deported. Today, we have this massive system of foreign interventionism. You mentioned Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, where 58,000 of my generation was sacrificed for nothing. What were the people in Afghanistan sacrificed for? Nothing. Korea, nothing. I mean, bad things happen in the world, but leave the United States government out of that equation. If, if private Americans want to go over there and fight in Korea or Vietnam, okay, fine. But my hunch is not very many would, but some might. Okay, leave the government out of it. So restore non-interventionism, bring all the troops home from everywhere, everywhere, Germany and whatever, and discharge them. They're, they're not necessary. And then dismantle this whole national security state apparatus. And, and I guarantee you, I will be the only Libertarian Party presidential candidate making this case because there's this mindset among my worthy opponents in this race that, oh, they, they have to have this giant military to keep them safe and they need the CIA and they need to have the power of assassination and indefinite detention and Guantanamo Bay and NSA to spy on us. Absolutely ludicrous. This is what has destroyed our freedom. Is so what? Security. So what would what would a president what would a president Hornberger would have done about something like say like a 9-11 type attack? I wouldn't have intervened in in foreign affairs that brought on that attack. You see, the the the, the attack they claimed they that the terrorists struck us because they hate our freedom and values. That was an absolute direct lie. They struck because they were angry over the U.S. government's interventionism in Iraq in the Middle East. The, the U.S. government was killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children. Imagine children. Madeleine Albright, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, says the deaths of half a million Iraqi children are worth it. That's what she said publicly to 60 Minutes. And by worth it, she meant trying to get rid of Saddam Hussein. It's that kind of death toll from this killing machine that I talked about, what Martin Luther King called the greatest purveyor of violence, that drove that, those terrorist attacks. Not only on 9-11, but the USS Cole, the, the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. So mm -hmm. if you don't engage in these interventions, you don't have to worry about terrorism anymore. You don't need a war on terrorism. You don't need the TSA at the airports anymore. The only reason we have all this war on terrorism is because of what the national security state did. They are responsible for driving the motivation that brought on those 9-11 attacks and the USS Cole and the rest of them. Hmm. Well, you know, this is a good transition, I think, to talking about, you know, maybe maybe one of the biggest threats to our security, and that is the way we've managed our money in this country. And so I wanted to combine a couple uh, topics. One was sort of the future of money and, and the debt. And so, uh, J James, maybe we could bring up the, the visual on this. So uh, just for those of you who aren't aware, our debt is now $32 trillion, and this sort of shows our debt over time. And you can see that in 1922 here, this is, by the way, this is Treasury's uh, uh, webpage. So we're not just like pulling this out of nowhere. This is the government's numbers. Um, and uh, 1922, it's just a pittance here. It's a, it looks like it's less than $1 trillion. And now we're at $32 trillion. Um, if you want to know what that looks like in respect to the size of our economy, the, the uh, grow, uh, our CBO, that's our Congressional Budget Office, has this nice chart where they compare 
debt to our gross domestic product. And you can see that back around the beginning of the last century, uh, it was it was almost nothing. You know, our, our debt was just a tiny fraction of our total productivity. We get to World War II and it's like around 100%. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if you're in a war that you figure is somehow life and death, maybe that makes sense. I, I don't know. But you can see we, we become productive. It sort of drops down after World War II. But now we're back up to those same levels. And our CBO is saying that we're heading off into the stratosphere on this stuff. And um, there's another chart that's showing that our GDP is starting to flatten out too, which is a scary thing when you start to think about what that other chart meant. Um, and inflation is starting to now go a little bit crazy. It, it's not quite into just crazy hyperinflation yet or anything, but we're starting to see higher levels than you know we, we would expect with sound money um and uh and all this time what we're being told that maybe a solution is don't worry the federal government can digitalize our dollar and that will <laughs> that will solve all of our problems the central bank digital currencies cbdc's uh as they're calling them and of course this this has privacy inf uh, implications as well from what we were talking about before because as we saw in canada governments will shut down speech by trying to shut down your money. And they didn't even have a CBDC there. Uh, if, yeah. if the government literally has their thumb on the button switch of your money, uh, whether or not you can spend it, that has massive implications. So, Jacob, what, what do you think about our, our debt situation and this whole idea of, uh, hey, going to a, a digital currency controlled by the government? Uh, they're taking us down. I mean, Democrats and Republicans are taking our country down. That's that's another reason why I'm running for this office and I'm, and I'm hoping to win this nomination is to, to call them out on this. You've got out of control spending, out of control debt, and then you've got the inflation that comes with this. Um, you, let's go back to the beginning. We, we start out with a society with no income tax and sound money. That the, the government, the Constitution called for gold coins and silver coins is our official money. There was no paper money for more than 100 years. We had a gold coin, silver coin standard, and people wanted it that way. The framers wanted it that way because they knew that a paper money standard would end up debasing the currency, plundering and looting people through inflation. Well, things start changing in the early 20th century. They get the income tax amendment in, the 16th Amendment. They established the central bank, the Federal Reserve. Then in the 1930s, Roosevelt nationalizes gold. I mean, just confiscates it without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment. He makes it a felony offense to own what had been the official money of the, of the American people, and he converts the country to a paper money standard. Well, now you've got the best of all worlds from the stated standpoint. You've got income tax, and you've got the, the welfare state that then evolves into the warfare state, the national security state, Everybody knew that they needed this paper money because they were going to spend out the gazoo, and they have. And they've always spent more than what they tax, and that's where the debt comes in. They just keep borrowing and borrowing. They, they've just cut a deal. Uh, they're in Congress where they're not going to cut spending at all. They're going to cut the increase that they had planned. Oh, big deal. And so you're going to see more massive debt, and this is not going to end well. Now, for people that die before the day of reckoning comes, no problem for them. But for younger people that are alive when that day of reckoning comes, it's going to be a nasty day. You mentioned $32 trillion in debt. That amounts to $250,000 per taxpayer. Now, how many taxpayers put that $250,000 debt on their balance sheet when they apply for a loan or a credit card or something? 
Uh, and yet that is what each taxpayer owes his pro rata share. This cannot end well. And uh, only libertarians can bring us out of this morass. And I should mention that Social Security, Medicare, and the military are the biggest components of all this. And you know where I stand. I mean, you, you go with where I want to go. You're not going to have a problem with spending anymore. You're not going to have a problem with debt anymore. And you're certainly not going to have a problem with monetary debauchery from the Federal Reserve. Indeed. You know, it, it, another uh, aspect of this as well, though, is as we just talked about the military, this is this is how empires fall. I mean, when Rome fell, they were debasing their currency like crazy. They went from having sound money to pot metal coins, right? <laughs> so that's uh, it, this is the, the CBCC seems like you know that's that's the equivalent of the pot metal that we it's, it's worse than the pot metal. It's it's got like no actual intrinsic value. <laughs> you, you've got a great point, Jason. That the nation is going to fall from within. Well, that they keep saying, that. oh, the the Russians are the threat, the Chinese are the threat, the terrorists are the threat, the illegal immigrants are the threat. No, the threat is right here within our own government. Our own government, led by Democrats and Republicans, are taking us down. And unless people rise up and say, no, you're not going to take us down, we're not going to let you take us down, uh, that day of reckoning is going to come and it's not going to be pretty. You know, when, when, when there was a default in Argentina several years ago, where Argentina just didn't have enough money to cover all their welfare and their warfare and their debt. You know what they did? Uh, they, they, they went and started confiscated uh, retirement accounts, like 401k type accounts, yes. and uh, replacing them with bonds. Um, these federal officials are no pikers when it comes to voraciousness. They, they, I have no doubts that they would go after those 401ks in a heartbeat if they need money. And, and we, that's why it's important to stop it now. That's why I'm, I'm running for this office to alert people that you got to stop it now. You cannot wait till that day of reckoning comes because it's really going to be too late. And that's when you get the tyranny, too. We often think that, think that we get the tyranny only with foreign crises. Look what happened in the Great Depression when the Federal Reserve brought on that stock market crash in 29. You ended up with the Roosevelt tyranny. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, this does bring us to, I, I guess, a, a, another problem, and that's what the federal government is currently doing about, I, I guess, our just our, our economy in general, the way that they're distorting things. And one of those things we can clearly see is in the energy policy. And James, maybe we could bring that up. Um, when President Biden got elected, one of his first steps was to uh or one of his first his very first action i think it was for executive order was to kill the keystone pipeline and yes. certainly there's a lot of distortion involved in having a keystone pipeline but the the bottom line though is his first step was to to promote sort of a an environmental agenda by killing this this keystone pipeline which really made a, con a contrast with the earlier administration which was kind of a drill baby drill administration and suddenly we got to an administration where it was telling us okay we're gonna not be able to use these uh, uh fossil fuel energies for uh climate reasons and you know it's a potential pollution issue um but uh you know here's an article showing you know that biden uh, from the los angeles times that biden was uh making sweeping changes early on to limit uh, our ability to drill but the funny thing was he was running around 
around the world trying to get oil from other places, which is kind of <laughs> defeats the whole purpose of, uh, you know, anybody who understands the climate change issue understands that, look, if, if that's a real thing, then it doesn't matter where the pollution's emitted. It's, it's going to have the same impact on the atmosphere. And yet, you know, Biden was running around trying to get uh, uh, people who he claimed were criminals uh you know this is the saudi uh, uh, prince who uh, they believe maybe murdered a, a reporter in this country <laughs> uh, was it this country or was it an, another country? i can't remember but he no, went i think i think it was, never done. Saw him again. No, it was done again <laughs> it, it was done in, uh, in turkey i believe it was turkey Okay, it was done in Turkey, but uh, but anyways, uh, you know the the point is is that uh, we have this bizarre uh, sort of energy and environmental policy, and and the funny thing is is it it overlaps into this whole military thing. I mean, we literally saw Biden kind of threatening to destroy the Keystone pipeline, and then boom, it gets destroyed, and uh, it just <laughs> and then suddenly, well, we didn't do it; it was some some uh, you know fisherman did it out there. We don't know what happened. No. <laughs> Apparently, not the Keystone. Stone Joseph is, is a Nord Stream pipeline. Oh, yeah, yeah, Nord Stream, Nord Stream. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So that was a Nord Stream, the, the pipeline going from Russia to Germany, and, yes. and that's all tied into this Ukraine business. Anyways, uh, Jacob, what, what do you think about the whole environmental and energy issue? How would you uh, approach these topics? Well, get government entirely out of it. I mean, look, they, they complain about you know, all this oil consumption and stuff, and yet, you know, we've been talking about the military. They never talk about how much oil the military is consuming with all its tanks and planes and all the wars it engenders and so forth. I mean, massive amounts of oil that they're consuming. Um, so with a limited government republic, you, you eliminate all that. But the worst thing in the world is to put the environment and energy in the hands of the government. The government's good at one thing, and that's killing people. They're not good at managing the environment. In fact, I find it kind of ironic that They've, they tell us that how much uh, the cars cause pollution. Well, guess how, why we have so many cars on the highway? It's because the government built this monstrosity, socialist monstrosity, public works monstrosity called the interstate highway system. Not to mention the whole system of roads in the country. Those are all public roads that were built with eminent domain, or at least most of them are. So they build this huge socialist structure that really is a free subsidy to the automobile industry. It puts the train and passenger train industry out of business where they then have to have the government run the Amtrak system. If, if the government had never done that, there wouldn't be so many cars on the highway, which then they wouldn't have to be lamenting. I say leave environmental problems in the private sector. We talked about private property rights earlier. Privatize all these public lands. Put them in private hands. Private owners take care of things. We, we've seen that time and time again. Government destroys things. Energy policy, just leave it in the private sector. Leave it in the hands of the oil companies, the entrepreneurs, and so forth. Let the market work these problems out because the worst thing you can do is put government in charge. All your Talk to anybody who's had any experience with the EPA. These are just little power-mongering tyrants there in the EPA. Get rid of it all and have a free market private property order. Well, Jacob, in some states, in some states, the federal government, well, taxpayers really, but in, in the federal government own like, you know, like two thirds of the land in, in those states. I mean, I think Nevada is such a state and there, there are others. So would you sell all of those lands off into private hands? Absolutely. This is just classic socialism. 
that they own two thirds of the land out there in the West. I mean, this is outrageous. We're supposed to be a private property society. Sell them off to the private sector. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, that certainly sounds like a, 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 a liberty approach um you know another problem that we've definitely facing and everybody can see it especially if you live in california or new york uh, or even washington dc the the you know the the sort of crown jewel of the country i guess you might say especially if you're a democrat um but is the uh uh, the homelessness situation. I, in, uh, James, maybe we could get this visual up. These are some images from California, but uh, you know th- this is. I'm, I'm not even 100% sure where this is, but that's the sad thing. You would think if some place were this bad, everybody would know exactly where it was. <laughs> and the problem is they're all over the place. I mean, it. This is you know come, become ubiquitous. Uh, California uh, is sort of leading the, the the nation in overall homeless numbers, but part of that's because we're a big state but it, it also happens to be uh that that possibly because we're a blue state too for the most part uh this is a um uh, image from uh near san francisco where apparently uh recently there was an article in the i believe it was the chronicle here uh where a, a line of people living in their rvs for over two miles along a section of road <laughs> so it's not just people in tents this is people everywhere trying to find some you know uh, uh way to I guess just get by in this uh, economy. And this is a HUD chart. So this is government numbers again, but it sort of shows where the problems are worse. And they, they, the darker the color of the uh, map, the, the bigger the homelessness problem is per capita in that area. And so you can kind of see definitely in some of these blue states, and Alaska is kind of an outlier because that's a red state and they've got a, apparently a significant homeless problem too there per capita. But California is, is, is pretty bad. And, what 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 will we do about this problem? How how does a president Hornberger address homelessness? Well, the, the the president doesn't do very much, but let me just give you the the causes of this. There are two causes for homelessness, and this is what people, especially in California, are loath to confront. Uh, one cause is zoning. You see, the, the the whole idea of zoning was that that government officials are going to centrally plan these cities and communities to make it look really nice with just nice homes. And so they were gradually zoning out poor people's homes, uh, people at the bottom of the economic ladder. And so they ultimately got to a point where they zoned people out, mobile homes or low-cost housing. And that's how you end up with the homeless problem, that they they can't go in there and build a a home for a poor person in a zoned community that allows for only middle-class type housing. If you repeal the zoning laws and let private property be developed naturally, including for poor people, the homeless problem would go away. The the second reason there's homelessness is the minimum wage. The the minimum wage locks out of the labor market all these homeless people whose labor is valued in the marketplace at less than the minimum. So they won't let them work. They'd be willing to work for $5 an hour, but the minimum wage law won't let them do that. If you get rid of these two interventions, let the free market operate, the homeless problem would go away. L- let me give you an example of this. In my hometown, when I got back to practice law of Laredo, Texas, Laredo was the poorest city in the United States. There was no homeless problem. Now, people were in shacks. It was a very poor community, uh, but at least they had shacks. They had a place to live. They had a roof over their heads, so they weren't sleeping out in the streets. 
Well, there was a, I had a client that whose, whose job, he had a contracting business. He built low cost housing for the poor and, and his housing was very clean, really nice. And um, he would charge by the day or by the week or by the month. And he had a lot of poor people come in and living in the, this facility. And then if they started accumulating a little bit of money, they'd move out. Unlike public housing, you know, so the government housing, they, they, if you start making too much money, they kick you out. And so the incentive is don't make too much money. Well, that's how a market operates. When you've got low cost housing in a community, you got entrepreneurs building this thing, but zoning laws prohibit them from doing it and minimum wage laws prohibit them from getting jobs. So, so Jacob, but Jacob, how, how, I mean, I, I accept your points about the zoning laws and the minimum wage laws. I, I, I mean, those things are quite destructive. And I think we all know that. But homelessness have uh, on the belly that nobody ever speaks about, which is drugs, alcohol, and mental disease. Have, um, those things have a very big impact upon the, the, the demographic of, of, home, of homeless people. How, how does that factor into, into, your, into your plans for homelessness? Look, when you lock people out of the labor market and you deprive them any possibility of a job, I think, I think most people would like to work for a living, be self-sustaining, and you deprive them of the opportunity to have a dwelling. Uh, to me, that's the best prescription you can have for sending a person into drugs and alcoholism. There's that sense of despair and hopelessness. It's like, what do I have to live for? I mean, there's probably a lot of suicides in this area too, because if you can't work because the state has made it impossible for you to work, if you can't get a home because the state's making it impossible for that, what do you have to live for? I mean, you know, I mean, I, yeah, there's other things, but I mean, to me, those are very essential, especially food and so forth. Um, the, the drug problem is a, is a different dimension. We can all sympathize with that. You know, we, we can talk about the drug war. I would say, you know, get the state totally out of this drug business and, and leave drug addiction to rehab centers. But most important, create the conditions where people can live a fulfilling life. Once you have that, there will still be drug addiction. There'll be alcoholism. But at least you're not creating these conditions of despair with state interventionism. You're giving people an opportunity for hope for a better life by working at, let's say, $5 an hour, building their little savings nest egg, living in a, in a private facility that's you know $25 a week or whatever. May not be the nicest place, but at least you give them a chance. Right now, they don't have a chance. Okay. The, the sad thing is, it seems like this government distortions that have have led to a lot of this have been there so long. It's going to take a while, no matter what we do, for some of this stuff to disappear. It, it just doesn't seem like it's going to be an overnight fix, no matter what. I, I'm not. I don't agree with that, Jason. I, I think the market just responds immediately. Now, I like I, I I agree with subdivisions. You know, when you have a subdivision. You can and you develop a large tract of land and you want certain housing in there. I got no problems with that. It's all privately developed. But in terms of the community as a whole, zoning is so illegitimate. And I think that if you eliminated zoning today, immediately entrepreneurs would be in there building housing for the poor to make money. I mean, you know, okay, they're homeless today, but if they can get a job tomorrow, all of a sudden, hey, now you've got uh, uh, the makings of, of making money. That was why I brought up my client. That's how he made money. 
He made money off poor people. That was his market that he was targeting to make money. And it worked. Poor people were getting into these homes. And I, I think that immediately, overnight, entrepreneurs would immediately, let's say, open up a trailer park, mobile home park. Hey, come and live here. And then with the repeal of the minimum wage, you could hire. I think tons of employers would be willing to hire people at $5 an hour, bigger profit. So I, I think you can have an instantaneous revival. Uh, you know, an example of this is the 1930s. Roosevelt had the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was a fascist government program. And people were saying, oh, God, we're, this is horrible. It's destructive. But, you know, we, we have to gradually eliminate it and so forth. And then one day the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. So from one day to the next, it was gone. The, the Supreme Court pushed the button to eliminate this thing. And immediately there was this economic revival. Immediately. And I think that's exactly what would happen if you got rid of zoning and minimum wage laws. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like one area that's sort of related to this whole thing. And we did touch upon it in our other show, so I, maybe we don't have to spend too long on it. But um, was the, the immigration issue, um, you know, it, it's funny because you have this this terrible situation we created with our immigration laws at the border. And we have these floods now of people coming in and places like these border towns. I know they've talked about El Paso, uh, you know, has been in the news in the last year or two and the amounts of people that are feeding into the homeless problem because they're winding up, they come in and then they, a lot of them are just put out on the street to sleep in the streets. And I, so, uh, but here's a, a couple of articles, uh, uh, James, maybe we could pull that up real quick. Um, uh, there was uh, the ending of the COVID policy where uh, Trump had put in something to, to block the borders up from people coming uh, saying that, I, well, we got to make sure they don't have COVID. So we'll keep them in Mexico until the crisis is over. Well, that crisis and uh, that COVID now crisis has ended funny COVID. COVID, the emergency's over after several years, they determined the emergency's over, but that's a whole nother bag, uh, you know, uh, that's a whole nother uh, ba barrel of worms, I guess. But but the uh, the, the crazy thing was, uh, the, I guess we haven't seen the, the huge numbers that we were worried about seeing, but we still have this, this big problem on the borders, uh, such that even in some places, they're talking about the government housing uh, migrants in schools, public schools schools, which, you know, kind of takes us all the way back to the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, the idea that here's a public school and you've got all these people who are the government is forcing to be right there uh, with your children in some of these communities um, that you may not know much about. And, um, and and there's a lot of bad information floating around, too. We, we had a show recently where we, we had heard a, a story um, about uh, veterans being evicted to house homeless. And it turned out that was a, a sort of a fake news story. So I just wanted to bring that out here too, that, you know, we got duped on that one too, talking about that on the show. But the point is it's a, it's a chaotic problem. There's, there's lots of chaos that it's creating through the, the society and a lot of bad information. What does president Hornberger do on immigration? And we talked about it a little bit before, but give us a quick refresher, I guess. Open the borders. Uh Look, I, I grew up on the border. I've seen this chaos, as you call it, all my life. Uh, I, I spent about half my life there, almost half my life. The chaos and the crisis is a direct result of America's system of immigration controls. It's a socialist system. It's based on the socialist principle of central planning. So therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that there's this chaos and crisis on the border. That's caused by the system. 
Ludwig von Mises, the libertarian economist, called the results of central planning uh, planned chaos. I mean, what better term to describe this? You know, so all this thing that you're describing there is not the result, the natural result of a free market. It's the natural result, the artificial result of this socialist system. So to end this crisis, you cannot reform the system. The system is defective. People keep saying, oh, we need comprehensive immigration reform. It's ridiculous because there is no comprehensive immigration reform that can reform a socialist system. So if, if you keep the system intact, you just got to sit back and say, okay, the chaos will continue. So you, you don't get all upset about it. And you know, oh my God, there's chaos on the border. You just got to accept that if with socialism comes chaos. If you open the borders, you get rid of the border patrol, you get rid of the immigration service, you just let people flow back and forth. You don't have all this conglomeration of people on the, in the border towns, Laredo, El Paso, Del Rio, and so forth. People just move north and they find jobs like in, in farms where the fields are rotting because they don't have enough workers to harvest the crops. But all of a sudden, there's a natural flow of people. You don't even know who you're dealing with, whether they're an American citizen or not. You don't care. You know, when you go into McDonald's today, you hear people speaking Spanish in the back. Do you go and say, oh, I want to see your papers to make sure you're an American? You don't care. Uh, and that's, that's why an open border system, which we had in this country for 100 years, open immigration, uh, it, it, it creates harmonies between people. No more deaths in the backs of 18-wheelers, drowning in the Rio Grande, dying of thirst on the, the lonely desert in the Southwest. No more Berlin Wall that Trump is uh, built down there. You just have free flows of people back and forth. It's the only solution, and it's the only, only solution consistent with liberty, and it's the only solution that's consistent with moral and religious principles. You know, people go to church every Sunday, and they, they learn God's second greatest commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and then the rest of the week they support this system that is just massively abusive to the poorest people in the world. I mean, these people, they just want to come and work and sustain their lives. And, and let me just wrap this up. A lot of them are coming because of U.S. interventionism in Latin America. Sanctions, like against Venezuela. Those sanctions, together with Venezuela's socialist system, have caused this influx. And secondly, the drug war. They, the, the drug war has turned Latin American cities into cesspools of violence, where people's only chance of survival is to come to the United States. If you stop that interventionism, things become more normalized. The flows become more normalized. But ultimately, guys, there's only one solution. I've been saying this for 34 years. There's only one solution. Open the borders. And again, let me emphasize, I'm the only candidate in the Libertarian Party calling for open borders. The rest of them, they want to reform it. They think they're going to fix it because they like what the Democrats and Republicans are doing. It, doing. They just think they can do a better job fixing the system. They can't. Even if they're libertarians, they can't make the system work. So, Jacob, so what about the whole argument of sovereignty? Now, for instance, I have my own personal sovereignty in my body, and I have a sovereignty that extends to my home. And no government official or anybody could just walk into my home. The government official could do so with a warrant. But if a thief walk into my home or somebody just walk into my home, I might end up shooting them. And I and I, I could probably claim self-defense on, on 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 that point. 
But the sum total of all our individual sovereignties, the sum total of all of it, is what we call the United States of America. So is there an argument that opening the borders and let people walk across as they damn well please, is there an argument that says that is a violation of our sovereignties? No, absolutely not. It's a protection of our private property rights. In other words, if you want to say, I don't want immigrants coming into my home, you have that right. And as you suggested, if somebody comes in your home in the middle of the night and you can shoot them, um, but I have a right as a homeowner and a business owner to invite who I want in my home. It's my sovereignty too. And if I want to invite a Mexican into my home or hire him in my business, that's my right. You have no rightful authority to interfere with my rights of freedom of association, liberty of contract, and, um, and just hiring whoever I want in my business. You know, we are not a collective home like Cuba. You know, Cuba considers it a collective home because the state owns everything in a socialist society. We are a nation of private property rights. Uh, so all these individual private properties, when the immigrants are coming in, they're using government roads, but they're using the roads for the same purpose that you and I do. We don't sleep on the roads. We use the roads to get from private property part A to go to private property part B. That's what immigrants do. They come in, they get a job in a, on a private farm or ranch, and uh, they, they get a private dwelling. They don't sleep out in the streets. So it's, it's the perfect system. Now, I'm, I'm glad you brought this trespass argument up because I told you I grew up on the border. I actually grew up on a farm on the Rio Grande. And the, the Border Patrol has the authority and have the authority to enter onto our farm, trespass onto our farm without a warrant. Because they said, we have a right to control the border. Well, okay, the border is the Rio Grande. All they had to do is go launch a boat under the International Bridge there in Laredo and go patrol the border. But no, they said, we have a right to enter onto your farm, which was a mile away from the river. And, and of course, in the process, search our farm and, and arrest our workers, which they did, who were illegal. Um, but but those, that's the trespass. That's the police state down there where they're trespassing on the private property without warrants. And that, but that's what comes with this socialist system, a police state. Yeah. It, it certainly seems like if we could just get rid of the, the socialism in our uh, controlling of the drug war and all of this, uh, um, you know, I, idea of controlling who comes in and out of the country and all of the, the crazy government social safety nets, it, it'd be like, wow, we could actually experience liberty and people could just have the dignity to come and go as they pleased, I think. But, uh, Jason, yeah. I'm really glad you said that. I mean, it's a very eloquent summary of what my campaign. I mean, that's the case we have to make to Americans is there's an alternative here. The Democrats and Republicans are taking us down, but it's not inevitable. Nothing's inevitable. There's an alternative, and that's libertarianism. And that's the case that we need to be making as libertarians, but we can't fall into this mindset of reform that, that Republicans and Democrats have, that we're going to reform the welfare warfare state, which is what most LP presidential candidates do. We have to be making the case for liberty if we expect people to finally come around to liberty. 
Well, you know, this brings us to our last topic real quick, and hopefully it'll be a real quick one. Um, this is uh, gun control. We've had, you know, and Leon, that was a good maybe segue. You talking about uh, if somebody is trespassing in your home, you know, <laughs> uh, should you have the right to defend yourself in your, in your property? Um, well, uh, here's a, 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 um, a infographic from Statista, and it's showing essentially that, you know, kind of what we've been seeing in the news, I suppose, that there's been an increase in the number of these mass shootings that have, have been happening. And certainly we've seen a few this year. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we had that one case with the, uh, I believe it was a Catholic school uh, in Tennessee, and there's a few mm -hmm. other cases as well. Um, so th there, there is a problem with some students, people putting risks on other people with, uh, you know, their use of guns. But on the other hand, the government is also getting in the business of, of trying to hide all the good that people do with guns as well. They, they actually undertook a study, the CDC, I believe, about good guys uh, with guns uh, helping to stop crimes. And then the CDC got a lot of political heat from it. And so they decided to, to hide that study. So, um, you know, and, and we talk about this a lot on the show as well, good guys with guns. Guns. Uh, we have a segment, you know, and uh, all these cases where they have, you know, uh, stopped some a bad guy with a gun. So, uh, uh, Jacob, what, what does the Hornberger administration do with respect to guns? Does uh, everybody have a right to kind of own what you want or are there any kind of restrictions? You got a right to own whatever you want. You know, we've talked a lot in this show and the previous show about private property rights. You have a right to own whatever private property you want, and that includes guns. But guns are the, are the safeguard for a free society. You know, they're not about, the right to own guns is not about shooting deer and hunting and so forth. Those are nice things. But the real reason you have a Second Amendment preserving this right, and remember, the Second Amendment doesn't give us the right to own guns. It preserves the fundamental, natural, God-given right to own guns because it, it ensures against a tyrannical regime. It, it gives people the means of resistance against tyranny. And, and don't ever tell me that, that there's not that potential when you've got a regime up there that is torturing, detaining people, um, uh, assassinating people, and supporting dictatorial regimes that oppress their own people. That potential always exists. And so the right to own guns is like an insurance policy. You start doing that over here at home. You start establishing the system here at home that you established like under Pinochet, we're going to resist you, or at least we have the capability to resist you. But there's also the self-defense aspect against private murderers and thieves and so forth. Uh, rapists. I mean, the, the, the gun's the great equalizer. Somebody that's weaker, uh, is not as strong as the rapist, uh, is able to resist with, with a, with a 45 or, you know, some other kind of pistol. Uh, so that's that factor. But we also have to address what is it that's causing this culture of violence? Is it because there's so many guns? That's ridiculous. That's what the left says. In, in Switzerland, people are armed to the teeth. You know, Arab family owns assault rifles and so forth because they're, they're prepared in the event they ever get invaded. You don't see these mass killings. So what is it about the United States that's causing these mass killings? And this is a thesis that I've been promoting for many, many years that when you've got this national security state that is this death machine, this killing machine, that is killing massive amounts of people overseas. Uh, I mean, we're talking about millions of people that they've killed in my lifetime. I mean, that, that's a lot of people. When you kill millions, that's nothing to scoff at. They, they, when it comes to killing, 
Democrats and Republicans have made America number one. And my thesis, the, the argument always was, as long as we're free to kill people over there and not sacrifice too many troops in the process, that Americans can just go about their business and everything will be fine. I've, I've said that's impossible, that that killing machine ultimately seeps into the skin of every single American. And that's what I think is going on here, that you've got these off-kilter people. Now, now we've seen off-kilter people. I saw them as a kid they, they, in downtown Laredo. They were just kind of weird. They'd walk around and you could just tell they were a little off. And I don't know, you know who was feeding them. I'm sure they had families, but they didn't bother anybody. Everybody could tell they're weird, but the, nope, they wouldn't bother anything. I think what's happened with this killing machine is it has triggered something in these off-kilter people that causes them to commit these copycat murders. That when they go out and do this mass killing, they're just copying their government. They're copying what their government's doing to foreigners. And now they're doing it to Americans. And, and the U.S. officials would say, well, the American life is more valuable than foreign life. But the off-kilter people are saying, huh, if my government can engage in this violence, I can too. And so if we got rid of this killing machine, which is what I'm advocating I have no doubts that the mass killings would stop here. The second thing is the drug war. That's the, one of the biggest causes of violence in America. Legalized drugs, all drugs, just like we legalized alcohol after that disastrous experiment with, uh, with um, alcohol prohibition, which generated massive amounts of violence, Al Capone and so forth. You would end a large portion of the violence that revolves around the drug war. So those two things. In the foreign interventionism, dismantle the killing machine that the federal government is, legalize drugs, and you would then see a monumental diminution of violence in America. Well, I, I think that's definitely a, a great note to end on. Um, and uh, James, could we bring up Jacob's uh, uh, webpage real quick? Uh, so uh, this is where you can go to find out more information about uh, Jacob uh, Hornberg. It's jacobforliberty.com, and you can find out more about his positions and his campaign efforts. Um, you can also check out uh, some of his writings at the Future of Freedom Foundation, uh, where they talk about a lot of these um you know, intellectual efforts on the libertarian front. Uh, J Jacob, did you want to uh, have a final word that you wanted to leave the audience with? Yeah, I'd like to, to say to all members of the Libertarian Party, look, for, for 30 years, I've been saying that our greatest asset in this party are our principles and that they're not liabilities they're not albatrosses and that they are vote getters. And I'm going to make this a major theme of this campaign. Every, every state convention that I speak at when the nominated convention start, and then at the national nominated convention, everybody needs to be aware that one of my principal themes is going to be the message of reform that characterizes my opponents is a loser when it comes to getting votes. You want to get votes. We are a political party. We're not a debating society. We're not an educational foundation. I know about educational foundations. I run one. The, we are a political party. Our job is to get votes. And what I'm saying is it is only, repeat, only a campaign that is based strictly on libertarian principles, our greatest asset, that is the vote getter. That is what pro will propel us into the 7 to 10 percent or higher category as co compared to perpetually being locked into the one to 3% category, which is what the reform libertarian party presidential candidates can get. I say, let's stick with principle. Let's have a campaign of principle for the party of principle. And that way we lead America to freedom, but at the same time, 
we break out into larger vote totals. And I want to thank you guys. This has been a really enjoyable experience. I didn't know it was going to go this long, but it's been very stimulating. And yes, uh, yes, I, want to, yes. I want to thank you guys. You guys are hardcore. <laughs> well, no, great. We, we thank you for sharing your thoughts, you know, and, and so many of these ideas, they take a little bit to get into. And we, we, you know, we don't want to give our viewers short shrift. So we want to make sure that they can come here and find out, you know, what it is that you know, uh, real libertarians are about and what they want to bring to this country. And I think that's what you're demonstrating here in this show. So thank you well, for thank joining you. us today, Jacob. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Jacob. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank yeah. you, Liam. And, and like I said, for any of you who are watching, we had an interview with Jacob that we did uh, uh, for uh, Public Access Television, and that uh, you can find online as well. But that is uh, uh, sort of a short snapshot of the campaign, is a little less than 30 minutes, uh, so you can hear a little more focused about the campaign. This was about the issues that you heard today. But thank you all for joining us. Until next time, so stay tuned and stay free. Yes, indeed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness always. Thank you for listening to the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. Find us on Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, your favorite podcast network, and at knuckleheadsofliberty.com.